This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Three hundred and fifty yards is a relatively short distance. It's about the length of three football pitches, a journey most of us could make in five minutes or less. It's also the distance between Sperrings Community Shop on Lower Addiscombe Road in Croydon and the home of the Hicks family. On a cold spring night in 1986, Kevin Hicks, 16 years old, the eldest child of Terry and Derek, made the short journey to Sperrings to buy some eggs. His younger sister Alex lay in bed, waiting for the knock on the door and the telltale sound of her brother's footsteps on the stairs as he returned from his short shopping trip. But they never came. And Alex has spent many a late night since ruminating on that 350-yard journey. Was there a freak accident of some kind along the way? one that someone decided to cover up? Or was there someone out there, a person or persons with malicious intent, who had deliberately harmed her sibling? It's a mystery that has plagued her for the better part of four decades. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Kevin Hicks. Kevin and Alex grew up in Croydon, where they were raised by their mum, Terry, and dad, Derek. Mum was a receptionist, um and also done payroll, that sort of side of things. And my dad was a computer management um, who had a joint business with his um, his best mate, um, doing computers, um, all different things from printing off um, like leaflets, as we now call junk mail. We was quite close. Um, obviously, being a year and one day between us and looking so much alike, people thought we were twins. Um, we went to the same schools and his friends were my friends and obviously their brothers and sisters, um, vice versa, we were, you know, we was all friends. For a significant chunk of their lives, the Hicks children were practically joined at the hip. But like all brother-sister relationships, sibling rivalry reared its head every once in a while. We was over the park. Um, it was, a uh, cold. We was quite young quite icy snowy day and at the bottom of the park they had like um a swimming pool and um, it was all full up with ice and I remember my brother kept trying to push me in there like just to skate on the top and I kept saying no 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 
and then I tried to push him in there and he managed to get me in there and I ended up with the result of uh, a sliced knee where the piece, piece of ice just went straight in my knee. <laughs> and I've never forgiven him for it either. <laughs> At school, Kevin was well liked. He got on really well with everybody. And he took his studies fairly seriously. As far as I know, Kevin never bunked off school, but when he come home from school, he'd always do his homework, because that was the rules. You come home, you get changed, you do your homework, you can go out, and then you come back for dinner. Um, that's where I was more sort of uh, bunking off with my mates because I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> he also had a lot of hobbies, chief amongst them being radio-controlled car racing, a pastime he and his dad bonded over. At the time, there was a shop called Beatty's that done, um, like, build a car um, or build aeroplanes, sort of like aero fix things. But this one was remote control car that you build up, put a little engine in it. And he found a couple of places local, which was at Eden Park at West Wickham um, and also at Crystal Palace Park where they done um, tournaments and competitions where he can race the car. Um, and if you're obviously in the top three, you get a little mini trophy. He was actually quite good. Um, we'd all go, um, cause especially if there was like, um, at Crystal Palace Park, we'd take the dog down there as well. And, um, so if I got bored, then I can just go off and take the dog for a walk or whatever. The dog in question was Blue, a German shepherd Labrador cross who had an affinity for a specific minty snack. His favourite thing was polos. <laughs> and he, he would know the name polo. So in the end, we had to call them ollops, which is polo back to front. And he, he would literally know, as soon as my mum would put her hand in her handbag or in her pocket, he would sit there in front of her and he wouldn't move. And he'd, he wouldn't move till he got a polo. He liked to have a fresh breath. <laughs> Kevin and Blue were particularly fond of one another. Wherever Kevin was, Blue was there. And obviously when Kevin went missing, Blue just stayed at the front door waiting for him to come home. Um, like he would do for when we come home from school or from the park or wherever. If we, as soon as we was out, he would lay there and think, right, it's, it's nearly sort of the time they come home, about quarter to four, four o'clock from school. He'd be sitting there waiting. Um, and it was actually quite sad to see, obviously, when um, Kevin went missing, that Blue was just laying there and, um, and waiting. Kevin was also a dab hand in the kitchen, a passion he discovered during home economics class. I think it was just something that he, he started to enjoy. And he, whatever he made at school, he always brought home. Christmas times, he always made like um, a chocolate, chocolate log. And I think one time he tried to make a beef wellington, but it went completely wrong. Um, and the boy being a boy, you know, he's throw it all up in the air. I'm not doing it no more because it just wouldn't go right. Even his mates didn't take the mick out of him as well. Quite a lot of, you know, blokes take the mick out of them doing cooking because that's a girl's hobby and sort of thing. As they got older, Alex and Kevin began to forge their own paths, lean into their own hobbies. As a result, they drifted apart a little bit. But Kevin was never far away if his sister needed him. If I had a problem, then he was there and he would help me out. 
Um, but at the same time, it would sort of be, you know, go away, don't talk to me, you stay on your side and I'll stay on my side sort of thing. But that's typical brother and sister um, banter when you're sort of like in your teenage years. On the evening of March the 2nd, 1986, the Hicks family sat down for what would end up being their final meal together. Alex remembers the last conversation she had with her brother well, because it was one they'd had a hundred times before. We all had dinner, um, and then me and Kevin had the typical argument. You wash up, now you wash up, I'll wash up, you dry up. And, you know, and in the end, my mum was like, you wash up, you dry up. And um, even though there was a dishwasher there, we were told we had to wash up. <laughs> Kevin won the argument, as he usually did. He triumphantly snatched the towel, smiling as Alex begrudgingly began to mix hot water and washing up liquid, and got to work scrubbing the towering stack of dishes next to the sink. While we was drying up, Dad got a call out to, to work. The alarms was going off. Um, so he went off to work, and that was probably about quarter to eight, eight o'clock. It was a Sunday night, so Kevin and Alex started to get their bags ready for school the next day. That's when Kevin suddenly remembered. Oh, I've got a cooking exam in the morning. Um, I need some eggs. Because whenever they were cooking, you had to bring your own ingredients in. So mum said, right, get whatever you want. It's all there. And, and that's when he said, oh, you've not got enough eggs. Um, I'll go down the road and get them, which was only... The shop's not that far, less than 500 yards, I think. You could run it in a minute and a half. Um, Kevin went down there at uh, 20 to 9 in the evening. And that was the last we saw of him. Alex remembers the sound of the front door slamming behind Kevin and the echo of his steps fading into the night as he took off at speed down the street known as Black Horse Lane. He literally took a pound with him, left his bike behind and he went everywhere on his bike, but, you know, because it was just more hassle getting the bike out the shed, riding down there and then coming all the way back again. So hence the reason he was by foot and um, left his keys behind because we was all indoors. Um, so there was no need to, to take the keys. We only took the keys with us when we knew no one was going to be home. The trip to and from the shop shouldn't have taken more than a quarter of an hour, far less for Kevin, who'd sprinted. But 15 minutes came and went with no sign of him. Terry tried to hide her concern, but Alex knew she was worried. If we was going to be late home... Um, Mum always said to us, reverse the charges and, you know, if we didn't have 5p for a phone call back then, because obviously there was no mobile phones around, but we would always phone unless we were at our friend's house and we'd say, can I phone my mum and, it's, you know, basically so-and-so's invited us for dinner, it's okay if I stay or I'm going to be half an hour late, I'm waiting for a bus. So we, we was always... Um, if we was late, we'd always let her know where we were and what we was doing. By the time Derek returned from work at around 10.30, Kevin still hadn't come home. Alex, who had been sent to bed at this point, 
remembers overhearing the concerned conversation between her parents as they paced back and forth downstairs. I heard mum say, don't lock the front door, Kevin's not home yet. And obviously dad straight away was, well, where the hell is he? Look at the time. And um, she said he went out, he went out to go and get some eggs for his exam tomorrow. Um, and he's not come back yet. But before I was sent to bed, I was moaning to my mum saying, if this was me, you know, I'd be in so much trouble um, taking so long. And mum was just basically trying to brush it off and always probably got talking to a friend and missed track of time and gone back to theirs or whatever. Kevin's dad jumped into his green Subaru estate and after enlisting the help of a friend who lived across the road, began searching the area. Meanwhile, Terry grabbed the phone and started dialing. My bedroom was sort of like the first on top of the stairs. Um, and next to the stairs downstairs was the, the front room. Um, and I could hear her um, on the phone ringing up all of Kevin's friends. I don't suppose Kevin's met up with um, so-and-so and gone back to yours and, no, sorry, but if you see him or if I hit, you know, see him, I'll let you know. By the time Derek returned a few hours later, Terry had not only called every one of Kevin's friends, but all of the hospitals in the area too. Each one of them told her the same thing. No one by the name of Kevin Hicks had been admitted that night. Derek had also stopped by the police station on his way home to report his son missing, but to his utter frustration he was turned away. The police at South Nord Station turned around and said, there's nothing we can do, he's 16, um, he's an adult, come back in 24 hours. Which, no, my dad was furious at, because <clears throat> 16-year-old might be classed as an adult, but he's still a kid. Alex lay awake until the early hours of the morning, listening intently to the goings-on downstairs, hoping she'd hear the front door open, quickly followed by her brother's sheepish apology to their beleaguered parents. But no such sounds ever materialised, and eventually she drifted off to sleep. The following morning she woke with a start and immediately ran to Kevin's room. His bedroom was next to mine. His door was always open. And in his bedroom, when you're looking out the window, you can see right up the end of the road where the shop was. Um, and looking the other way, you can see right up the the, the bridge with the, the train track. Um, so you had a good view of the road, of Black Horse Lane. And obviously I went in there, saw that his bed hadn't been touched. And mum was sitting on the windowsill looking out the window, looking up the road, which she spent most of the days doing. Alex ate a hurried breakfast. The mood at the table was understandably subdued. No one was saying very much. She picked up her bag and Derek drove her to school. Alex tried to go about her day as normal, but by the time the final bell rang that day, the whole school would know that her brother was missing. The police actually came to the school, spoke to the teachers and the headmaster. We had an emergency assembly where the police took over the assembly and explained that 
um, Kevin was missing. Does anybody know where he is? Have they seen him? Have they spoken to him? And obviously people were all shocked. Alex was then taken home by two police officers. They brought her up to Kevin's bedroom, where they proceeded to interrogate the 15-year-old about her brother's whereabouts. And basically saying to me, come on, enough of this rubbish. You know exactly where he is. Just tell us where he is. And I didn't have a clue. And I kept saying to them, I don't know anything. I don't know where he is. And it's like, oh, come on, come on. Brothers and sisters always talk to one another. Alex was deeply confused. If she knew where her brother was, why would anyone think she'd keep that information to herself? And it wasn't just the police who believed that she knew more than she was letting on. All the accusations that I was getting from the police and at the time from my mum and dad as well, but I I know they didn't mean to be sort of like bombarding me with questions but they're probably bombarding one another with questions as well. Um, so it's just a fear. And I would just ignore them and go straight out to my room because that was the best place for me at the time, just to stay in my room and, and stay out of it. Because um, I wasn't being talking, you know, being spoken to like I've done something, and I hadn't. The police also spoke at length with Kevin's best friend, Andy. The pair had gone ice skating together on Saturday night just 24 hours before Kevin vanished. But when pressed about Kevin's mindset, Andy couldn't recall anything out of the ordinary. Andy said, you know, he was as normal. There didn't seem to be any problems. He wasn't concerned about anything. As time went by, the investigation into Kevin's disappearance ramped up. The police was in contact every day. We had a family liaison that was at the house every day. They were doing door-to-door knocks, you know, asking questions, hadn't all of Kevin's friends, they were all being um, questioned, investigated. Um, had they seen him? When was the last time they saw him? What did they do? What did you talk about? And then the beginning of the second week, they'd done a search at Shirley Hills, which backs on to our school at John Ruskin. Like a, a mini forest it's um it's got a restaurant in there but it's also where a lot of people walk their dogs you've got a viewpoint there where you can literally look over the whole of sort of Croydon and see um London it's like the local viewpoint it's, you know on a clear day you can see miles and miles naturally Alex wanted to help with the search for her brother in any way that she could when they'd done the, the search at Shirley Hills from the school, I wasn't allowed to go, um, being his sister. Um, but all of Kevin's friends from school joined in on that search. The male teachers joined in on that search. And my dad, my uncle and my granddad were all up there. Um, my granddad come across black sacks and obviously the search had to be stopped. Um, but it turns out that the black sacks were just full of leaves that someone had dumped. Years later, she can appreciate that her parents were trying to protect her, but it didn't stop her from feeling intensely frustrated at being kept out of the loop. I was kicking up stink, saying, well, at the end of the day, he's my brother. Why am I aren't allowed to be, you know, why am I not allowed to be included in it? 
you know, if everyone else can go and my my dad can go, why can't I go? Kevin's friends are there. And it was just, you know, because it, it wasn't because I was being left out. I, I, I really wanted to be there because at the end of the day, he's my sibling. So I should be allowed to go. But no matter what they said to me, it wasn't making sense. And I just kicked off on one and, you know, <laughs> as you do. Unsurprisingly, Sperring's community shop, where Kevin had intended to purchase his eggs, was the first port of call for the authorities. They went to the shop um, where Kevin was meant to have gone and asked for the CCTV um, tape and the manager turned around and said, uh, we're sorry, we didn't, we haven't got one in there. We've got the, you know, the video and we've got the TV, but we don't have any tapes. <laughs> and the staff don't even remember Kevin going in there. It was a serious blow to the investigation. Without knowing if Kevin had ever made it to the shop in the first place, and at what time, they were relying on guesswork to determine the scope of their search. But then, all of a sudden, there was a reported sighting. There was a young lad in Thornton Heath uh, that worked in a hairdresser's he apparently looked the double of Kevin and the police took him home to get his parents to prove who he was by looking at his birth certificate and his passport. And obviously it turned out it wasn't Kevin, but it was so much that he looked like him, they had to do it. As days turned into weeks, the Hicks family could sense the police's rapidly diminishing belief that Kevin would turn up. The police were good at the at the beginning um, and then they just started to slack off um, and not be that helpful um, and not much communication. Given the sheer amount of young men who vanish in the United Kingdom on an annual basis, Alex began to wonder, had Kevin been female, would his case have gotten more attention? I've always said when a young girl or a woman goes missing, they get more publicity than what a male does. And I think it's so wrong. For their part, Kevin's parents did everything they could to keep the case in the limelight. They'd done um, a lot of media. At the time, it was the Croydon Advertiser, which was the local paper. And the Croydon Guardian and the Croydon Post were the freebie papers at the time. Um, and also, Mum and Dad was doing quite a bit of news um, with the police, um, Crime Watch as well. Uh, they couldn't do reconstruction of Kevin because literally it was just Kevin coming out the house and walking up the road and then that's it because we don't know what happened, how far he got. So they, they wouldn't do a reconstruction. Um, but they would show you a picture of the house when they're filming and the road that Kevin walked up, which was Blackhorse Lane. And then they would show a picture of the shop that Kevin was meant to have gone to. Despite their best efforts, the initial media blitz didn't result in a single tip about their missing son. They responded the way most parents in their situation would, by doing everything in their power to make sure the same thing didn't happen to their daughter. They wrapped me up in cotton wool and I hated it. I'm being shouted at because I'm a few minutes late coming home from going out with my friends or coming home from school or I didn't phone up. It was just anything to pick on me. 
I had to be home at something stupid like seven o'clock. That's where all my mates were out till about eight, nine o'clock and they had a bit more freedom than what I did. And in the end, it just got too much, so I moved out. Things were tense between Alex and her parents for quite some time. Her parents didn't approve of Alex's decision to fly the nest and they hated the fact that they could no longer keep tabs on her. But eventually, they all began to see eye to eye. Terry got sick and passed away from complications relating to a brain tumour in 1994. And from that point onwards, Alex took on a more involved role in the ongoing search for her brother. When it comes to the 10 years, you have the rights legally to declare whoever's missing dead if you want to. Obviously, mum and dad have always said they're not declaring Kevin dead until there's a body. Because there's no proof until you get a body. Um, and I said to Dad, no way are you doing that on the 10-year. He, he's out there somewhere. We've got to find the answers. Following her father's death in 2003, looking for Kevin became Alex's sole responsibility, and it was one she took extremely seriously. But many of those near and dear to her couldn't understand why Alex was still searching. A lot of people have said, oh, um, you know, it's obvious that he's run away, he doesn't want anything to do with the family, or he's been murdered, just accept it and get on with your life. Or people like that, my response to them is, well, let's just hope you never go missing and need help. And with the advent of social media in the noughties, Alex suddenly had powerful new tools available to her, ones that didn't exist when Kevin vanished back in 1986. I'm on Facebook and I've set up Kevin's page as well. Kevin Hicks is missing. And it's not just him that I put on there. It's whoever is missing. But obviously, the, the main page is Kevin. So I'd write on there updates or anything. And whilst Alex found a lot of support online, she also experienced unkind commentary. People have written on Kevin's page and privately messaged me. You know, just accept the fact it's over 30 years He's dead. Get on with your life. Why are you even bothering wasting your time and, and things like this? And I was rebelling and, and literally having an argument back and forth with the messages. Alex remembers her very first encounter with an online troll all too well. It was quite a long time ago and I was really shocked. Um, I was at work at the time and I had a message come through on my phone. On Facebook, you have a message from Kevin Hicks and straight away it was like, oh my God, what do I do? Do I open it? Do I ignore it? What do I do? And I was a complete mess because obviously it just tells you the name. It doesn't show you a picture or anything like that <clears throat> until you open it up. And I waited till I got home and went straight around my best mate's house and said to her, look at my phone. And she was like, well, open it. Let's see what the message says. So we, we opened the message together. And it was a, a gentleman that was in Australia in an orange suit, which was obviously, he was in prison. And it was an older man. And he said, my name is Kevin Hicks. I'm your brother. I am alive. And this is what I'm in prison for. Basically, you can think of the worst things that he'd put. And straight away, I thought, you know, this is someone, again, that's got too much time on their hands and just trying to make me feel angry. Um, the fact that I know you're not my brother. And that did affect me for quite a while. 
because again it, it was just how dare you say that sort of thing um, when I've only got to look at you and, and know damn well you're not my brother. By far the most difficult messages to deal with, however, were those that suggested that Terry and Derek had a hand in her brother's disappearance. They always blame the parents. The parents have got something to do with it. Your mum and your dad have, have murdered your brother. They've hidden his body. And again, it was more that I'm getting that sort of troll and dealing with my dad dying at the time. I, I had a nervous breakdown. I couldn't cope. In all the years that have passed since Alex last fought with her brother over who should wash the dishes, there has been just one occasion where she sensed Kevin might have been close by. My mum's funeral, and I'll never forget this, the church was packed inside and out. There were so many people there, even driving into the church. People were lined up because they couldn't get into the church. Um, at the end of the ceremony, myself and my dad counted the flowers, not knowing one another was doing it. We went back the next day to take the cards off the flowers. And again, we didn't know we was both counting the flowers. There was an extra bunch of flowers there with no card. I think it was Kevin. He could have been there and no one would have noticed he could have changed his appearance and obviously you know people aren't looking at people on a, a funeral day they're they're too emotional and they're not thinking about oh my god is his son here you know is her son here or after the funeral he could have turned up laid the flowers there and then gone again but it was just weird the fact that oh, when we got home myself and my dad spoke about it and we both said at the same time, there's an extra bunch of flowers there. I could see in Dad's face, he didn't have to tell me, but I could see it in his face, he was thinking the same as me. Hopefully that was Kevin that laid those flowers. Alex has her own theory about what became of Kevin. I've always thought to myself that he's not in this country, he's in the army navy side and he's got some he's in something to do with cooking on the chef's side. I've always thought that. I don't know why. Um, I think it's because I just know how much of a passion his cooking was. And obviously back then, nearly 37 years ago, it was easier to get in the Army stroke Navy than what it is nowadays. So there was no need to have all the checks and the birth certificates and all that lot. You could just apply, that's it, in you go. An officer who worked the case at the time and has since retired thinks there's little hope left that Kevin could be found alive. He believes Alex's brother was murdered, a theory allegedly supported by an anonymous tip-off to the local paper, the Croydon Advertiser. I don't know much about that. All I've heard about is someone phoned up and said, I know where his body is, but the police haven't said any more about that. And that was quite a long time ago. Over three and a half decades after Kevin's disappearance, what Alex wants more than anything else is answers. Something to bring her the peace that her mother and father were denied. Someone somewhere out there knows what happened that night. To, to hold a secret for nearly 37 years, if they know what happened, it's time to come forward. 
contact the police, contact missing people, even contact myself. I need closure. I've got 15 years of memory and nearly 37 years of searching for Kevin. It's time to come forward and admit or disclose to someone you know what happened or you know of someone that's told you something that happened to Kevin. Probably just more hope than anything else. But also, if you don't have hope, you've got nothing. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Kevin, or you remember seeing someone like him on March the 2nd, 1986, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Kevin Hicks before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured on this podcast. There, you can join an online movement, one dedicated to supporting the investigations for all the cases we've covered, including the one you're listening to right now. Since the launch of The Missing Podcast, over 300 volunteers have joined community investigation teams led by Locate International. In the UK alone, there are over 12,000 long-term missing and unidentified people. To support Locate's efforts and to learn more about the vital work they do, visit locate.international where you can join the mission to help locate the missing. The series is also made in collaboration with the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116000 or by emailing them at 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We cannot say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Alex hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.